Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend we celebrate together All Saints Day in our churches. It is the day of the year in particular that we set aside to remember the the brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us to join their Lord. We also call them the church triumphant, triumph that they are celebrating. Whereas we refer to ourselves as the church militant, like military, we're still fighting. And so that's our theme for the weekend together. It is once again, a detour from your regular lectionary readings. Although just like Reformation Sunday last week, it is an annual celebration. So it comes up on our church calendar each and every year. So it's not like it's unusual. These texts will be familiar because you hear them in in church every year, but it isn't your normal propers readings for the Sunday after Pentecost, whichever Sunday it falls on on any given calendar year. Our first reading, again, not an Old Testament reading. If you're mourning that like I am, it's okay. We'll get back to the Old Testament with a reading next week from Amos. But for now, Revelation chapter 7, and it's an optional verses 2 through 8, and then everyone will have 9 through 17. So you can choose as a congregation to include seven additional verses before the text. For the sake of our, our podcast here, we will cover the additional readings as well. And then our epistle text from 1 John chapter 3 verses 1 through 3, and the gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Had we just picked up a gospel reading out of John's gospel, all three of our readings this week would have been written by John. But we have Matthew, which has been our gospel text throughout the course of this year together. We actually skipped over uh, the Beatitudes at the beginning of the year. As we went through the season of Epiphany, we were in Matthew chapter 4 and chapter 5, and we did not cover verses 1 through 12. So we get to look at them together today. So we begin back in Revelation chapter 7. I'm actually going to read, well, let's just do it. Let's do it in two parts today. Because really the text breaks down pretty comfortable into two parts. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Revelation chapter 7 is, in a way, an interlude. Chapter 6 begins the seven seals, as you learn about the different kinds of suffering that man causes to other men um, in our sinful nature. Really, it was what those, those seals are going to be about, the first five at least. When you get to the sixth seal, it's more of a tale of the end of the world. And then we get this break to examine really the idea of salvation. And then after this chapter, right at the beginning of chapter 8, you return to the seals with the seventh seal, which actually just introduces a repetition. It reintroduces itself as you then go into, I forgot, is it the seven trumpets or the seven bowls that come after the seven seals in the book of Revelation? I don't have that quickly marked here. I think it's the seven trumpets that come next. So as you look at this, chapter 7 in particular, what we have is the theme of salvation. We have the picture of the church 
And so verses 1 through 8 are that church militant we've talked about at the opening, and verses 9 through 17 are the church triumphant, for whom we, we are thanking God for this weekend as we rejoice that they get to be with their Savior. So that's the theme. That's where we're headed. And so let's look at the text. Let's, let's pack it, break it down, unpack it together. So we have verse 2. The angel that ascends from the rising of the sun. The sun rises in the east. So the angel is ascending from the east, coming in John's vision. He calls out with a loud voice. He's carrying the seal of the living God, or he bears the seal of the living God, which We don't want to make too much of here. We see the seven seals elsewhere in the book. I mean, this is the seven seals. This is the interlude of those seven seals. And it doesn't seem like the way we want to translate this particular idea of a seal. Instead, maybe closer to what we see in verse 3. Until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So this idea of a seal here in verse 2 on this angel... Uh, again, just as it is for us, the idea of of faith, that this angel is a servant of the living God. Now, the angel cries out to the four angels. Uh, those four angels were mentioned in verse 1, which we just missed in our text today. It's the only verse from chapter 7 we're not covering. And those four angels are on each of the four corners of, of the earth. Four is the number that the Bible uses to represent creation. So you think of the cardinal directions. You have north, south, east, and west. There are four of them. And so, so you also then have this conversation about the four corners of the earth. We know the earth is spherical, right? Not technically round, but a sphere. This is not to say that the Bible is wrong. But again, uh, we understand God's word based on what he says. And so those four corners of the earth are simply a representation of the entirety of God's creation that he has made for us. Now, as we look to verse, well, still two, that they had been given power. God has granted them power to judge the world. And that's not judges in the same sense as God is the judge over heaven and earth but it is to bring about his judgment, it is, it is to bring about the, the end times, to bring about the, the destruction of creation for creation's sin. And so verse 3, God says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So there is a moment, there is a pause, however long that pause may be, while God waits before the destruction comes. The destruction is earned, right? We've earned that destruction for ourselves a long time ago, and yet God has been enduring our sinfulness with patience. This matches up with the parable of the weeds that we read from Jesus, if I remember right, that's Matthew chapter 13, where the, the master sows good seed in his field, but an enemy overnight comes and seeds, seeds his field with weeds. Darnell in particular. And the disciples, the servants, want to rip out the weeds, but the master tells them not to because in ripping out the weeds, they may also unroot, uproot, and destroy uh, the, the, good, the good crop. So wait until the end of time, we'll harvest it all together, and we'll separate it at the harvest time. And so that's the kind of a picture we're getting here as well, that the, the time is not yet complete. God is still patiently waiting, and he is still enduring sin in this world so that he can continue to rescue those who believe in him, those who trust in him for salvation. Now, what is this seal on their foreheads reference to? There have certainly been those who want to make it something special, some kind of literal mark or symbol or tattoo 
that is added to the forehead. There is a potential decent connection that could be made to the Old Testament, the idea of the phylacteries, the little boxes that they made and put God's word in and they would wear around their forehead and also uh, around their their wrists, really, uh, if I remember that correctly. But where we're going to go with this and where the early church took this was to the sign of the cross being made upon the forehead in one's baptism. From as early as the second or third century, we can see this in the practice of the early church. And that's a wonderful thing. And the church has been doing it ever since. We make the sign of the cross on both the heart and the mind, so the forehead and the chest, and we say to mark you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. So sealed by God, they have been claimed by God in the waters of holy baptism. Paul will talk about baptism as a seal in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, and Ephesians chapter 4. So this language is familiar to the scriptures. Then we get this number 144,000. This number represents the church on earth. It is the church militant. 144,000 is not to be viewed as a literal number of all those people that God will ever save, although there are people who believe that. Instead, as we broke this number down just last week, I'll repeat that again here quickly. Old Testament, 12 tribes of Israel was the church of God. New Testament, the 12 apostles was the New Testament church of God. So you have the Old Testament church times the New Testament church to make 144. And then you have 10 times 10 times 10. 10 is the number of completeness or fullness. So this is the fullness of fullness of fullness. Complete, complete, complete. This is the entirety of God's people. That is what is represented by this number here. From every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, Israel gets redefined for us in Romans chapter 9, verse 8, as being the church. Christians today are no longer to look to the physical land over in the Middle East and hope that somehow that gets restored. And we can pray for the people that live there. Certainly, they're creatures that God has made, and we should. We should care for them as best we can. But our salvation is not tied to that. Christ's return is not tied to that whatsoever. Romans 9 instead teaches us that Israel is the church. The New Testament Israel is all who believe in Christ from every tribe and every nation, as we're going to see down in verse 9 below. So as we get to verse 5 through 8, you have 12 tribes of Israel mentioned, and this is a bit of a tricky list, and it's tricky to even know what to do with this list. First, you have the 12, right? But these are not the 12 sons of Israel. Um, because Manasseh makes the list. Manasseh gives Dan the boot. Uh, Manasseh is a grandson of Jacob. So Jacob has 12 sons with his wives, Leah and Rachel, and their two concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah. And of these 12 sons, Levi does not get a land allotment. Because Levi's descendants are made to be the priestly tribe, and so they are scattered among the nation so that they can serve as priests and offer up sacrifices on behalf of the people. Uh, the, the people are to care from them from the produce of their lands. And so Joseph's tribe gets split into two to fill that gap. So Joseph doesn't get a tribe, but instead Ephraim and Manasseh, his two sons, both get their own land allotments. And so you're back to the number 12. But here, Ephraim is out, one of the two sons, and Joseph is in in his place. And then again, Dan is out, and Manasseh is in in his place from the list of the original 12. So it's hard to know exactly why God in, in this list has chosen the 12 names that he chose. It is possible that Dan is being excluded because Dan is a site of pagan worship in the Old Testament. When the nations divide into north and south kingdoms, Israel and Judah, the king of Israel does not want his people to go down to Judah to worship in the temple because he fears they will not return. And so he instead gives them two cities 
where they can worship in their own land. And one is Bethel on the southern border. And on the northern border, it's the city of Dan. And he sets a golden calf in each of those cities for the people to worship. So it is possible that's the reason why Dan is omitted. Ephraim, we see in the book of Hosea, uh, that prophet uses Ephraim as the name to represent the entire nation, the entire northern nation, the faithless sons of Israel. So maybe there's a connection there as well. I don't know. I think on my part, at least, it would be a lot of reading into this to try and figure out anything more than what I've just shared with you. Might be one on the list to figure out why God chose these particular 12 names someday when we get to meet him face to face. As for now, we move into the second section of the text. So the first eight verses, the church militant. The next eight, well, nine verses, the church triumphant. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude, so that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There are not many texts in the Bible that talk about the saints who are already with God. This is one of them, and that is why it is chosen as a scripture reading for All Saints Day in our worship calendar together uh, this weekend. We start here with the idea that a great multitude that could not be counted has been gathered to the Lord before his throne. So, so much for the idea of a literal 144,000, right? Plus, these are a different group. So there are significantly more than 144,000 people who will be in paradise someday, which is great news. We should rejoice at that with, without a doubt. I mean, there is much rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents, let alone over hundreds of thousands of sinners, if not millions and billions. So we are thankful and we get to live with the Lord in paradise. And that's a wonderful thing. And all the more that are there, all the better. They're from every nation, which is good news also. Uh, that is part of the word. And a lot of people get hung up on that part. Uh, that Christ will not return until everyone has had a chance to hear the gospel. That phrase actually is a reference to all peoples, which is all nations. And so the idea here in Revelation 9 is that every nation has heard the gospel and that people out of every nation believed that gospel, good news, and they get to be with God. Clothed in white robes is going to be picked up on in verse 14, so we'll hold off on that for just a moment with palm branches in their hands. Palm branches is a connection for us in our churches to Palm Sunday, where we usually have the traditions locally in different churches do vary, but a lot of our churches will have children waving palm branches or even give palm branches to everyone um, as they remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The idea of the palm branch, this one's not hard to think through. You can picture this, and maybe you've seen it in, in film, but the picture of the king being fanned, you know, you, you take a big leafy branch like this and you wave it, it creates a nice little breeze, and so the servants of the king would fan him. That's a, a helpful picture, depiction of what we have here. So they have gathered around the throne, they are serving the Lord in his temple 
uh, as we're going to read down in verse 15 uh, in just a moment. So palm branches were used on Palm Sunday for that very reason, uh, waving at Jesus um, as a king. They are a declaration of royalty, of kingness, if that's a word. Verse 10, we have salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. So God who sits on the throne is a reference to the Father. The Lamb is a reference to Jesus. Uh, Jesus saves. We're certainly thankful for that. And then we have who else is gathered. So you have the great multitude that's gathered already. They're standing before the throne and now around the throne. So you have this massive gathering that faces the throne. And then nearer to God here are then the 24 elders from verse or chapter 4, verse 4. Um, that's the 12 Old Testament tribes and the 12 New Testament apostles. So again, the church of old and new represented in that. And then the four living creatures, which again show up first in chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. And seems likely that's a reference to four angels, a little bit more specifically. They fall on their faces. That means they worship. They worship the Lord and they attribute to him. Let's see. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might. Seven things. That seven number is very popular in the book of Revelation. Seven as the number for perfection, as it is God, three, plus creation, which is four. So God God together with and caring for his creation equals seven, and that is the picture of perfection. So blessing. When the greater blesses the lesser, so when God blesses us, he is giving us something. When the lesser blesses the greater, it is in a sense a return of thanks for the gift that has been given. So we bless God. We thank him for what he has done for us. And that is included in the list as well in itself. Uh, thanksgiving is the fourth word here. So we bless God. We thank God for what he has done for us. We give him glory. That means we use our lives to point others to him and to what he does for us and for them. Wisdom, attributing God to God, this wonderful characteristic that he is indeed wise. Um, the Bible uses Jesus, well, it uses wisdom as a, a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament, at least in a, several different spots. Honor, we should honor the Lord. Honor and respect are two words that go very closely together. And then power. So God has the, the ability to do things and, and what needs to be done in his creation. And then might, a reference to his, his strength. So it's a good list of characteristics here being associated to or even given to God by us, depending on which one it is. And then forever and ever, that means, well, it means what it says, without end. Paradise will not end. Our life with God will not end. And that's a tremendous, tremendous comfort and gift, something we look forward to greatly. Amen means truly. So just um, declaring that this thing that they have heard is true and good. Then the, one of the elders, one of the 24, asks John, who are these people? Who are the ones in the white robes? <laughs> what an answer from John. Sir, you know. John doesn't admit that he doesn't know, but passes it off anyway and, and gets the elder to answer his own question. And the elder does. He answers it for us. We're thankful for that. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. The great tribulation is the sinful world in which we live. And so the ones coming out of it are all the Christians. The entire church triumphant is the reference here. Everyone who has had trust and faith in the Lord that he would provide for them, that he would save them from their sin and from death, that is who is gathered together. That is who is dressed in the white robes. It, it is not to be limited to martyrs, although it includes martyrs. They have washed their robes in the blood of of the lamb we don't think of blood making clothing white 
but the blood of Jesus has purified us from all sin. He has removed our uncleanness. We are perfect. We can come into the presence of the Holy God and live. And then verse 15, uh, saying the same thing, we're in his presence now. Uh, while the church triumphant is, at least, we are waiting for that day ourselves. And they serve him day and night in his temple. Day and night, without end. Serving the Lord and doing whatever he has for us to do. And we really don't know that answer. We don't know what that looks like. And that's okay, because we'll be with God. God is the source of all that is good. He is the one who has provided for us. So whatever he has in store for us in paradise is going to be beyond our description now, and it will be better than anything we could try to describe now. So we just look forward to it. And he shelters us with his presence. So he cares for us even then. Even though there will be no more enemy to protect us from, he protects us still. We will hunger no more. We will thirst no more. Uh, that fits with the depiction of heaven being a heavenly feast, of heavenly banquet. Uh, the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom, to use Revelation language. The sun will not strike, the scorching heat will not strike. So even, even the, the new creation, which you'll read about in Revelation 21, cares for us. It does not harm us. Verse 17, the Lamb will be their shepherd. That's a wondrous phrase, isn't it? The Lamb will be the shepherd. He will care for us. He will guide us. He will feed us. He will protect us. All good things shepherds do. And one of the things he will guide us to is living water. It's a good reference to baptism. Although baptism won't be needed in paradise any longer, but we will have Jesus himself as our, our daily bread and our living water. And then God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. A reference to no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, no more sin. It's all gone because Christ has triumphed. It's a beautiful interlude in the midst of a lot of judgment in the book. And really that seven seals language. Um, so you get this interlude of the church and the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And then you return back to the seventh seal. Our second reading comes from one of John's epistles, the first epistle. So John writes the book of Revelation. He writes the gospel account, which we, we call just John usually, but it's officially the gospel according to John. And then he also writes first, second, and third John. So he writes these five books all right near the end of his life. And what we have here is one of the passages from that first epistle that he writes to the church. And it's just three short verses for us today. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So we are encouraged to see the kind of love the Father has given to us. So um, just as Jesus will often use hear and see language in other places in Scripture to refer to faith, we are called to look to the gifts that God has given to us. And there is a primary gift that is being focused on here. Um, very much so emphasized here, this relationship of a father and child that we think of in, in worldly terms. But God uses this imagery to help us understand what we have in him. He is our father, right? That's how Jesus teaches us to pray to him, our father who art in heaven. We have all learned that prayer from, from the time we were just children. And so the father God the Father, and we are children of God. He is our Father. We are his children. John stresses that here. So he stresses it by calling him Father in verse 1. He stresses it by saying that we are called children of God. 
And then he stresses it again in the same sentence by saying, so we are. So there's a threefold emphasis right there in that verse. And then he says it one more time down in verse two. We are God's children now. So John emphasizing here good news. What does a father do for his child? A father cares for his children. He puts a roof over their head, food on their table. He protects them. He loves them. These are the kinds of things that we are, are able to then see that God does for us. He gives us all that we need in this life, but then more than that, he also gives us everlasting life with him in his paradise. So these wonderful connections, we should be called children of God. We are children of God and we are children of God now. This isn't a future statement. It's not like, if you do good enough, you'll be a child of God. If you just do enough, or if you live right, God will love you as his child. None of that. You are God's child now. That's good news. Um, for us, particularly in the Lutheran Church, we usually connect that to baptism. We are declared God's child in the waters of baptism. For the most part in our circles, if a person is brought to faith uh, when they're a little older, uh, so they come to faith by hearing and then they wish to be baptized, then that person has been made a child of God before they were baptized. But baptism is still a gift that the Lord has given um, in the time after. So we rejoice in those gifts that God has given to his church for the strengthening of our faith, even the creation of our faith, as we talk about word and sacrament. Now, verse 1 also includes this idea of the world not knowing us. You got to take that word know a little deeper here. This isn't acquaintance kind of knowledge. Yeah, I know that guy. He, you know, he comes into the shop once a week. This is much deeper. It's a more intimate love. It is, uh, sorry, not love, knowledge, but it is a love. It is an understanding. It is an acceptance. The world does not understand the Christian. The world does not love the Christian. The world does not accept the Christian. And the reason why is because it did not know him. The world did not understand Jesus. The world did not love Jesus. The world did not accept Jesus. Instead, what did the world do when God sent his son to them? The world killed him. The world hated Jesus. The world despised Jesus for calling them out on their sins and seeking to hold them accountable, calling them to repent before an almighty God. The world could not stand that message. The world reveled in its sins and it hung Jesus on a cross. Because the world responded to Jesus like that, we are to expect the world to respond to us like that. That's not a thing for us to fear, as we'll see in our gospel text in just a few minutes. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. So that glory that we will have in the resurrection, the body that you are in right now, is the body that you will have in the resurrection. In death, body and soul are, well, they perish, they're, they're separated, and they're put to rest. Uh, the body and the ground, the soul, with Christ for all that we, to the best of our knowledge. And then on the last day when Christ returns, the resurrection of all flesh occurs. Every dead body is brought back from the dead. I almost said to life, the scripture doesn't speak that way. There is no life apart from Christ. So those who are raised, who did not believe in Jesus, are not said to be raised to life. They are raised to judgment, which is an interesting phrase, different than how we normally think of things in worldly terms. But when Christ returns, your body and soul will be raised. They will be reunited. This body that you have now is the body you will have then. It will simply be better. And I have no idea what that means. 
you will be glorified. Your body will be made new. I don't know if we will all be the same age or if there will be varying ages. I don't know if we will still bear on us the scars and the wounds that this world and life inflicted. The only resurrected body that we really hear about in Scripture is the body of Christ himself, and we know that body still bears the wounds from the cross. But that could very well easily be because he is Jesus, and it would be a reminder to us in paradise of what he did for us of his great love for us, and we wouldn't want to forget that. So we can't quite compare the resurrected body of Jesus to our own, even though we hear here that we will be like him. The image of God is restored to us. What we were made to be in the very beginning is what we will finally be when we are with Christ forevermore. When he appears is the reference to the second coming, We know, note the contrast with verse 1, so the world does not know us, but here's what we know. We know Christ is coming. We know that we will be made like him. Why? Because we will finally see him as he is. The world did not ever see him as he is. But we will. We will see him in all of his glory. This is likely close to what Peter, James, and John got to see on the mountain when Jesus was transfigured. We will see Jesus in the fullness of his glory forevermore. Now the last line, verse 3, certainly causes some confusion. Everyone who thus hopes in him, so hopes to be raised, hopes to be restored into the image of God by Christ at his second coming, Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So there's no trouble with the last words, right? We all know Jesus is pure. He is perfect. The the trouble for us comes with the phrase purifies himself. What does that mean? Many Christians throughout the history of the church, both in the past and even in the present, will take those words and say that, If I believe in Jesus, I must purify myself. I must rid myself of of evil desires, temptations, and sin. I have to look to Jesus, and I have to be like Jesus now. Others of us will look to this phrase and say that, you know, for us who believe in Jesus, for us who place our trust in him, we are purified on account of that faith. There's benefit to both statements. We are made pure by Christ. We do not actually purify ourselves. We're not capable of purifying ourselves. But at the same time, we are still called to do it, right? As a Christian, God does not just tell you to go on sinning. No, he expects us to to give up our sins. He expects us to put temptation aside and to follow Christ. So both things fit. It fits the idea that the Christian who hopes in Christ should purify himself, should drive away sin and earthly desires. However, because we know that we fail to do that, we know our trust and our hope lie in Jesus Christ himself, who has already purified us by his blood on the cross. That brings us to our gospel text for today, which is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. This section is commonly known in the church as the Beatitudes, a a reference to the blessings that Christ gives to his people. Now, as we look at the text, consider and bear in mind the context. Jesus has just, uh, well, just been baptized and then wandered out into the wilderness for 40 days of the devil's uh, temptations. And then as upon his return, he immediately begins calling disciples to himself. He doesn't call all 12 of them yet in this context of the gospel, but he does call some of them. And then he begins to minister. He begins to serve the crowds. And having served them, they are witnessing all that he can do. They are blown away by it. And so they are naturally curious, and they are gathering themselves around him. And so we're going to begin 
with some separation. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the beginning of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus preaches from a mountaintop um, to a crowd. And so it's a sermon, you know, well-titled. We're good at titles. The sermon is the longest recorded section of Jesus speaking that we have, as it spans from here, uh, verse 3 of chapter 5, all the way through nearly the end of chapter 7. There's a couple of verses tacked on the end of the crowd's, I don't want to say response, but just how the crowd response makes it sound like they do something. They're, they're amazed. So the crowd hears this preaching, and then we learn a little bit about, about what they heard and, and what impression that had upon them. That's probably a good way to say it. So as we consider then this conversation, the disciples gather closer to him on the mount, but the other crowd's still here, and he sits down to preach. So you can almost imagine a giant hillside, and Jesus is at the top of the hill, and he's preaching from there so that more people can see him and hear him and understand what he has to say. Uh, his voice will carry better in this kind of a setting. We're going to jump straight over verse 2 as he just starts to speak. Verses 3 through 10 all have the same sentence structure. So blessed is, blessed are, this group of people, for theirs is. That's a constant structure for the first eight Beatitudes out of nine. The final one in verse 11 and 12 is going to differ significantly. You'll notice the shift in the language. Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. It keeps going. But then verse 11, blessed are you. And that's an important shift. We're going to pick back up on that here in just a little bit. But before we do, notice also how some of these things fit together. The first four, verses 3 through 6, are going to be beatitudes spoken to those who are broken and powerless, which really is all of us. Verses 7 through 9, the next three, is of the faithful worker. But these are all things that Christ himself does. So all of this is rooted in Jesus. I mean, even, even verses 3 through 6, you could talk about connections to Jesus with the brokenness that we see there. It's not his brokenness, but his suffering on behalf of our brokenness. And then verse 11 again, uh, verse 10 goes, pairs pretty well with verses 11 and 12, which again show more of a passive thing rather than verse 7, 8, and 9, where it was more active. We do these things. Now it's these things are being done to us. We are suffering and we are being blessed by God on account of that suffering. So three different chunks here that you can look at and how they fit together. We're going to look, starting at verse 3, though, and this word blessed brings to mind the idea that, that we talked about before with the, the well, not the Old Testament, the first reading of the day from Revelation, the idea that they, when the greater blesses the lesser, they are bestowing upon them a gift. So blessed 
are the poor in spirit. That's the group that's going to receive this gift. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's the gift. That's the structure that you want to see. Um, you could also look at this blessed are as the idea of salvation, that God is going to save us. That's the, the consistent theme of all of these things. Salvation is at hand. And that really sets up the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Your typical Lutheran pastor's preaching can almost always be counted on to start with the law and with the gospel. Almost always. Not always, but almost. It's really interesting that the most prominent sermon Jesus ever preaches, he begins with the gospel and he ends with the law. He does it the opposite, opposite direction. So lots of beautiful gospel to begin this text. And not this text, this sermon. Our text is only the gospel part. Um, really just a lot of beautiful words that Christ has to speak to his people. I mean, consider this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's sinners. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus just promised the sinners of this world paradise. His kingdom. Doesn't get much better than that. But we're going to unpack those words a little bit. So this does have a connection, a good connection to Isaiah 61, where you would learn that the Messiah would come to bring good news to the poor. Now, Jesus is certainly doing that as he begins the Sermon on the Mount. Poor in spirit can be debated. Who is? What is the spirit of that verse referring to? Is it our spirit? So poor in spirit then would be a reference to those who are broken down, uh, beaten down, downtrodden. Or is it poor in spirit as in the Holy Spirit, which would be a reference to, to us having a weaker faith? Um, most of the commentary that I've seen on this one usually goes with the idea that this is our brokenness, even a reference to our sinfulness. Um, so it kind of combines the two ideas. Because if it's just poor in spirit, as in we have, you know, we've been beaten up by this world, that's not necessarily a reference to our sin. But weakness of faith is a reference to our sin. So it kind of puts them together. I think probably, it's probably good to view it that way. Either way, though, what Jesus ends up saying would still hold true. Those who are of faith, even if it's a weak faith, those who are suffering in this world, theirs is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew prefers to say. They get it all. They get the gospel. They get the, the, the promise of a life that never ends. They get the kingdom. And this is in contrast. The kingdom of heaven is in vivid contrast to the kingdom of this world. That's what the people expected from a Messiah. They wanted Jesus to overthrow Rome, reestablish Israel to all of her former glory. And Jesus is saying no. The very first words of his sermon, some of the very first words we have recorded in Scripture straight from the mouth of Christ, speak the opposite of that. Jesus doesn't promise the poor a worldly kingdom. He promises them his kingdom, which, as he tells Pilate, is not of this world. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Mourning is not, not as in the idea of it's early today. Uh, mourning is the idea that we grieve. We grieve over sin and death in this world. This is those who are battle-scarred in creation. Why are they blessed? Because they will be comforted. Notice first, that's future tense. God does comfort us here and now, and in many and various ways. But ultimately, our comfort will come when we are removed from sin, death, and suffering. It's what we read in verse 17 of the Revelation reading, that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We will be comforted. But it's future tense, so we still look forward to that day when God comforts us in his paradise. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The Greek word there for meek probably better translates as gentle or humble. Um, 
but we can use and we can work with meek. Most people are used to the, the beatitude here saying meek in their English translation. Someone who is meek is essentially a pushover. They let others have their way. And that fits with the idea of humble, sort of. Um, a person who is humble does not seek power for themselves. So what we have here is being described the person who normally doesn't get Right? This is the person who normally doesn't take for themselves. This is the person that lets the world around them have what the world around them wants to have. And again, you can look at them as a pushover, so they're getting pushed out of the way. They are the ones who get the earth. They might not be getting it now. They might not be getting all the things of this world and this life now but they will get the fullness of God's creation that is to come. And then verse 6, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be satisfied. Um, That word satisfied can also be translated as um, to be filled or fulfilled. So uh, the picture I get from my children when we, we have dinner together at home, sometimes they will tell me, Daddy, my tummy is full. And they will show me with their hand and they'll draw it all the way up to their chin to show me that they couldn't possibly put another piece of food into them. So it will be for us. Not necessarily that literally, but we will be full. We will be satisfied. We will be lacking nothing. We will have Christ himself. We will have all that we need in paradise. And, you know, the way scripture talks, it sure does seem like that will include a heavenly banquet, a marriage feast of the Lamb. So why not include the idea that we get to eat forevermore and have our fill? Now, those who thirst and hunger and thirst for righteousness is a reference to those who have acknowledged their sins, they've acknowledged being poor in spirit, and they are seeking the Lord. They are seeking to repent of their sin. They are looking for forgiveness. They are looking for what God has to provide for them. This connects to verse uh, chapter 6, verse 33. So later on here in this sermon from Jesus. In that verse, we learn, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So there's your connection. Now, verses 7 through 9, again, are going to show us, they're going to show us faithful workers. They're going to call upon us to acknowledge and to see these things. Really, really all of these things are things that Christ does. But because Christ does them, just as we talked about in the John text that we are, to we are to be like him so here as we see christ do these things we as his children are called also to do these things so blessed are the merciful god has mercy on us god has spared us from death and from the grave he has spared us from the devil's uh, hand He has spared us from all that we deserve. He is merciful. And so we are called upon to have mercy. And as we are merciful, as we are being faithful to what God gives us to do, he continues to share his mercy with us. Then verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. Now we can take a step back there and ask the question, who's actually pure in heart? And which of us? is pure in heart. Now that does connect actually to 1 John as well. 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. But not one of us is pure in heart. And we know it. That's why we always confess our sin. And John says it himself in that same letter earlier on. He he who says he has no sin deceives himself and the truth is not in him. It's back in the first chapter of that same epistle. But, Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew within me a right spirit. We pray for this. We ask God for this. Could be a good way to look at this section. The only one with a pure heart is Jesus himself, but we pray that he would give us this thing. 
The only one who is truly merciful is Jesus himself. And we pray that he would give us that gift to share with others. The only one who truly makes peace is Jesus, as he made peace between God and sinful man. And we pray that he would help us to, to share that with others as well. So you have that again. Um, so the pure in heart will see God. That is, they will be in paradise. And then the peacemakers get to see, or they get to be called sons of God. Other than this phrase in this verse, so Matthew 5, 9, anywhere else in Matthew's gospel, he reserves the title Son of God for Jesus alone. But here, as just a glimpse of what is to come, he includes us in the phrase. Verse 10, which wraps up the, the eight Beatitudes that have the same structure, the blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not just for any reason. You know, you're not blessed because you're persecuted in this world. You're blessed if you're persecuted on behalf of Jesus. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, specifically verse 20, where you can read about this as well. We suffer for the sake of Christ. We mentioned that with the, the 1 John 3 cha chapter text as well, um, that we suffer because the world caused him to suffer. And so they treat us as they treated him. What's the gift to these? To those who, who suffer for righteousness' sake, who are persecuted? The kingdom of heaven is the gift, just as it was back in verse 3, the poor in spirit. So they're almost like bookends of the Beatitudes. But this more specific one tacked on as Jesus turns from just generalized speech to more direct personalized speech. We would certainly look at this and say that you know, the crowd and the disciples are being included in the verses 3 through 10. But verse 11 shifts it to speak to them directly. And that's a good thing. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This has been happening to Christians throughout the world for generation after generation. The world hated Jesus, so the world hates us. That's not uncommon. It's not to be unexpected. It's not to surprise us. We're called to anticipate it. But we also aren't called to then whine about it or grumble about it or even complain about it. Instead, what are we called to do? Rejoice and be glad. Wow. That's a different, different approach to life, isn't it? Um, that when we suffer, we would rejoice in our sufferings. And again, Peter picks up on that very well. He encourages us to rejoice in our sufferings because we share in the suffering of Christ and because we can share the hope that we have with those who are persecuting us and perhaps expand the kingdom of God in doing so, bring them to faith as they see why we have such great hope. So we rejoice. Why do we rejoice, though? Because your reward is great in heaven. If they persecute you, if they hate you, if they cause you to suffer, which the world, again, may indeed do, if they put you to the point of death, as we talked about martyrs, and we will see martyrs in that whole book of Revelation frequently, if the world kills you for faith in Christ, where do you go? You get to be with Jesus. You get to be with your Savior. So the worst thing the world thinks it can give you really isn't bad at all. It's actually a good thing. Because in death you get to be with Christ. This is Paul, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, where he says, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It is good to live because we get to serve. We get to care for our neighbor. We get to share the gospel. But if we die... We have not lost, we have gained, because we are now with Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. So that's the hope that we are pointed to here. And then we do have the reference to the martyrs of old, the Old Testament prophets. John the Baptist is included in this even. And Jesus is included in this as really the great prophet of God. Uh, Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. So they persecuted the prophets before us. So they will also persecute us. But again, that is not a cause for grumbling. 
it is a cause for rejoicing. That is our, our text for the week as we, again, think of those saints, those brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us and now are resting with their Lord, waiting for his return. That day when we get to be all together again in the marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom, which knows no end. Amen.